I wonder if you've ever said to yourself these two words, why me? Anyone? Ever said, why me? We're at that time of the year again when the demonic pigeons from the east come to rest upon the tree overlooking our house. And I have shared this before and I want to share it again because it's now bothering me a lot because they are the most demonized pigeons in the universe and they come and gather and no matter where we put our car on the drive or down the road here or down the road, up the road here, they seek us out. And I've looked up and down the street, nobody else's car gets the load from the demonized pigeons apart from ours. And in fact, we took Alison's car to one of those car wash places yesterday and the fellas all went, not sure we can get that off, mate. <laughs> and sometimes when life, I'm going to watch the analogy here, when life drops things on you, that's the wrong analogy, when you get in situations, it's easy to say, why me, isn't it? But you know what? That phrase, why me, could be seen negatively, as in why me, why all this bad stuff, but it could also be seen positively. Why me, God? Why would you put me in this position? Why would you put me in this place? Why would I be in this possibility right now? What have I done to deserve this great thing? And we need to change, and I need to change, the complaint to the confession. Rather than why me as if, oh God, why me God, that you would grace me so much that I would be in a position to be able to be used by you and for you for the extension of your kingdom. And there's a verse I want us to consider today, and you're going to hear from quite a few different people today, not just me, you'll be glad to know. But the verse I want us to consider is a very famous verse from the book of Esther in the Old Testament. And it says, and who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Many of us know it. Who knows that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Last Sunday at the end of church, I was speaking to someone here from the church who I'm going to introduce to you in a moment. Nelson, in the very dashing waistcoat there. And many of you know Nelson. And I was chatting to Nelson, uh, and I knew that he had a meeting that week. And I said, how did the meeting go? It wasn't an ordinary meeting. It was a one-to-one meeting with Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister. Ooh, I know. And we were chatting about this, and I said, how did it go? And we'll explain that in a minute to you. And we were talking about this phrase, why me? Why me? Not in a negative way, but in a positive way. Why me? Why would I be in that position? And I want to kind of welcome Nelson. I'm going to interview him for a moment. We're just going to talk a little bit about what happened. So would you welcome him? Put your hands together. Thank you, Nelson. Good morning, all. <laughs> now, some of us in the church know you with your wife, Helen, and your kids who are part of this church and uh, here on Sunday. And in the week, I know that you work down in London. You're involved in civil engineering and involved in quite high level. Tell us, and I know that we, we're not talking about this because like Nelson was bragging or anything like that, but how did you get to have a one-to-one with Gordon Brown? What have you done wrong? <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I have one confession before I start. Um, my wife said to me this morning, she said, um, you know, you're going to be interviewed. I said, have you prepared for it? I said, well, you know, I get press interview all the time and I have to prepare for it. I said, but it's Leon. It's <laughs> Leon is in the church and we're among family. So hopefully there's no reporter here. So, <laughs> so I mean, whatever now. we say is confidential. Um, <laughs> to answer your question, well, I happen to be a civil engineer, um, and I build things all over the world, and I've been privileged 
all my life to have the opportunity to get trained and to work in different parts of the world. And as much as I run away from it, it still haunts me. I travel a lot. I don't like it. Um, but every time I come back to church on Sunday, I feel safe. Even. I feel at ease and I yes. feel very pleased uh, because it's one place in my life that gets me back into my grassroots. And when I get back on Monday, I say, Lord, I give it before you. You take mm. control. But to answer your question, mm. why me? Um, I think it's, it's been a sequence of events. Um, early this year, um, we all knew that the big elephant in the room is about the economy, the recession. Uh, a lot of British construction companies, they work all over the world. And right now, a lot of them are not paying, um, particularly Middle East. And if you have friends or family who are working Middle East, you know how difficult it is. And I had to go to you know, Middle East, and we discovered there's over one billion of fee unpaid. Now, as much as I work about Olympic, which is nine billion, we talk about Crossway with 16 billion, and we are in our back garden talking about possibly 10 million of church development. It's all relative. Uh, <laughs> the, issue we have, <laughs> the issue we have is about what is government doing about helping British company? And for me, and for my sins, I get to talk on behalf of the industry, which employs over 100,000 professional engineers and consultants, doing over 10 billion, uh, over 800 companies, and they're all over the world. And I have to speak on their behalf. So the question of why me mm. comes to me all the time. Why am I the one talking yeah. on behalf? Why am I the one dealing with the issue? Okay. So your question is, how do I get myself to Gordon Brown? Um, all of the reason I was just informed that within the UK, there's about 100 people who are considered to be most influential people in the United Kingdom. I happen to be one of them. Wow. So stop there for a minute. <laughs> It was the black people, wasn't it? It was. The 100 most influential black, black people, people in the United Kingdom. Because you Kingdom. told me that's Lewis right. Hamilton was there. He was there. As well. And but you were before him. That's what you said I to me. I was before <laughs> him. <laughs> so you weren't that humble on that bit. I was. Yes, I was. Well, top 100 black people, um, including the lady for the House of Lords, you know, Baroness Amos, yeah. the whole upper and lower wow. house are very much there. And I had a one-to-one -one uh, time waiting. Uh, the question was, how is your industry getting on? How did you manage to achieve the position you achieved? And what do you think is going to happen post-April next year? Um, that was so the Prime Minister question. asked you what you think is going to happen come April next year. Absolutely. So what did you tell him? My answer to the Prime Minister, I said, well, there's somebody bigger than you and I who knows the outcome. I don't know it. Wow. That's not David Cameron, is it? No. <laughs> it's up there. Yeah, I know that. It's, it's up there. It's up there. Uh, and the question said, you know, well, was the industry feeling? So I, I told him my view. Uh, he asked about what is happening in the Middle East. I share my feedback with him. And he asked how I've managed to achieve the position I've achieved, to which I said, you know, I give God the glory because wow. I, it wasn't my making, it was the making of God. And I Fantastic. just have to bow down to that. Wow. So, so you, you were there in number 10, yeah. Downing Street. Yeah, it was quite intimidating. You go across the stairs, you see all the all ex-prime ministers and all the <laughs> photographs you know, and you bow down to each and every <laughs> and you come down you ask him why am I here yeah um, so, 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 so he asks you about the economy and everything and you, and you were able to say about God you know and point towards God as well which is an awesome yeah. opportunity surprise surprise uh, the prime minister is a very shy individual yeah um, he actually believed a lot in, in faith yeah um, and when I used the word that is somebody bigger than you and I I, was ask, I thought he may ask me, who is that person? But he knew. He knew, yeah. And I just said, it's, it's up there. I can't yeah. touch it. I can't feel it, but yeah. I can feel his presence in my life. Yeah. And he's the one that knows 
the alpha and the omega and the beginning and yeah. the end. So I'm not in a position to say. Yeah. Um, and the next question he said to me is, do you think the other side are doing anything as good as what we're doing? <laughs> uh, and I said, the jury is out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So politicians answer that is. Well, I have to be. I have to be. I have to be. Okay, so 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 this this who knows that you've come to a royal position for such yeah. a time as this is what Esther yes, was called into. Yeah. So obviously, for you sitting there in number ten, mm. that kind of feels like that, mm. doesn't it? That that you are in a position like that. Do, do you ask why me then? What does that mean to you? Well, first of all, you know, I said, what have I done to be the top hundred? That's the first yeah. question because there are yeah. hundreds of millions of black people in the United yeah. Kingdom. And for a little boy that came from Nigeria six, 35 years ago, um, lived in Birmingham or Midlands for 32 years, and then suddenly find himself in Helsowen and in Zion Church for the last mm. six, seven years, I th- why me? Yeah. Um, and the answer that comes to me is God wants me to be where I am. That's right. And it doesn't matter what, yeah. how big the village is. It doesn't matter mm. how far I travel. It doesn't matter who mm. I have to deal with, whether it's the upper house, lower house, prime minister, or what they have to do with me, it doesn't really bother you as an individual. God has placed you to do whatever is right in what you should take advantage of you. And in Zion Church, I praise God for what God has done for me and my family and the church and the little contribution I've made into the church. Um, fantastic. One more thing. You've, you've been involved with us with the building right from the early days. That's correct. Okay. With your, tell us what you feel about it. Can it be done? It's doable. How? <laughs> can, it, can it be done? Uh, uh, for those who probably you know got involved, I think if there's anybody to be you know praise and blame, I think I should take the blame and praise God. And I'll tell you the reason for it. Um, I got involved with the uh, building program because I was told we need to extend the building. Mm. We were told you know the roof is about to collapse, <laughs> and we need to do extension to. It. And I sat down within the first meeting and I said to Leon, we actually need to build a new church. And he said, what do you mean? I said, we need to build a new church because the cost of repairing, doing Mm. the roof, extending, it's just not worth it. We Mm. need a new church. Mm. And he said, well, it's easier for you because you deal with millions. (laughs) Uh, But but long story short, um, bless uh, Bob. Uh, Bob and I, Mm. in our little journey, we travel. In fact, going down to uh, Elim, Elim's place. In fact, going across to Dudley Council to look at the planning, to look at the constraint. And I was heavily involved when I had the time being in home. Uh, but in the last two years, I think it's fair to say I'm more or less a passive, active person rather than an active. active. Mm. But the challenge we have is very simple. The challenge is we've got to believe that this is God's making. Mm. We've got to believe that it's time for us to build yeah. the next generation, next chapter. Yeah. And I passionately believe that we shouldn't get derailed. The question you have to stop about, do we have to do it? Have we got the God message? I think the message is loud and clear. We mm-hmm. need to embrace it. I actually passionately believe that we can do it. And we can do it in our time. Amen. And by the grace of God, every single individual in this church should rise up to the challenge. In my little way, whatever time permit me, I will rise up to the challenge. Mm-hmm. And I praise God for Leon's life, for the time and the leadership that is coming through. But among every single one of us in this church, yeah. we are positioned here for a particular endowment policy, mm-hmm. which is to contribute to the future. Some mm-hmm. people have the audacity to build this church. We have the right responsibility to take it up and take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. And I continue to pray in my little way. And if we all join together, we'll achieve something bigger than what we already conceived to do. By the grace Amen. of God. Fantastic. 
Thank you, Nelson. Why don't we thank Nelson this morning? Awesome. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you. You know, it's awesome to think, isn't it, that someone who sits in our church is considered to be one of the hundred most influential black people in the country. And very easy then to say, oh, well, he's obviously in a royal position for such a time as this. He's talking to Gordon Brown. But do you know what? Every single one of us are in a royal position for such a time as this. Because it's not connected to who we're talking to. It's connected to who we're connected to. So actually, I passionately believe that you are where you are in a royal position for such a time as this. You see, you've asked yourself, why me? Why am I in this school? You've asked yourself, why me? Why am I in this job? You've asked, why am I in this business? Why am I in this community? Why am I in this office? Why am I in this shop? Well, you're there because for this season, for right now, I'm not saying forever, God wants you there. You are in a royal position. And you can either say, oh, why me? Why does it always happen to me? Or you can say, Lord, why me? I don't really understand it, but I want to embrace it and I want to live it out. And I want to make a difference where you've placed me right here and right now. You see, the Bible says in Psalm 5 verse 12, Surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous and you surround them with your favour as a shield. We have been blessed with the favour of God. And that's not meant to be in a bank or in a museum as in, in our life. It's meant, not meant to hold the favour of God as a, like a museum piece or as a bank, you know, where we stash it and hoard it. But it's meant and it has currency and value when we spend it on behalf of other people. You see, we're blessed in order to be a blessing. It's ancient, isn't it? That's right from the early days of Genesis. You're blessed to be a blessing. And we're going to look a little bit this morning at Esther, who turned the why me question from one of complaint to one of confession. She got a, like a eureka moment, a revelation moment, where she understood why she was in the palace for such a time as this. Now, I need to give you the background. If you want to look at the Bible uh, in the book of Esther, the background, this is a little bit after Ezra and Nehemiah, we looked at last week. Babylon has fallen and the Persian Empire is the superpower of the day. King Xerxes is the ruler of the empire. It stretches from Asia Minor down to Africa across to northern India. There are 127 provinces that he rules over. It starts in Esther chapter 1 where he has a party that lasts six months. So he gets all his mates round, gets the Budweiser out, okay, and he's having a six-month party with his mates. The pinnacle of the party is he wants to show off the, the trophy that he's got, which is his wife, Vashti. So he, brings, he wants to bring Queen Vashti in to show her off to all of his drunken mates. Now, why does he want to show her off? Is it her brains? Is it her sparkling wit? It says in chapter 1, verse 11, he wanted to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people, for she was lovely to look at. Now I know it's inconceivable for us to imagine that a middle-aged man would want a beautiful young woman on his wife to parade her. That's inconceivable for us to imagine, isn't it? I mean, that happened in those days, but that would never happen in our days, would it? I don't know whether you read uh, or saw on BBC News about a Somalian man who was 112, who's just married a 17-year-old girl. You talk about, is the age gap a difference? It's 95 years. Age gap. It's unbelievable. But you know, in our culture, we equally, in our culture, have this... I want to speak to the women for a moment. I really, really you know, think you live in a culture which is such a pressure for women. 
Alison and myself went to see a film a couple of weeks ago on a date, because um, that's what we do occasionally. I'm sure you do as well. And we went to see this, couple, this film, and it was about four couples that went on a retreat together. And all the way through the film, Alison kept saying, look at the women, look at the women. And I'm saying, I am looking at them. They, they were, <laughs> what's the problem? Each of the four women were gorgeous, slim, beautiful. And she says, and look at the men. Oh, I get your point. And they weren't. They weren't. And what that conveys, that's our culture, isn't it, women? You know what I'm talking about. What that conveys is that a woman has to be beautiful and slim and to be a trophy kind of thing. And the man can look like a fat slob and unkept and and whatever. And it doesn't matter. But actually, it does matter. Because the message that that tells women is that all they are is a trophy on the arm of a man. And you know, Queen Vashti was like that. She was a trophy on the arm of a man. But you know what? She said no. She said no. And you don't say no to King Xerxes. And the Bible says that he was angry and he banished her. And we never hear of her again, but we know what happened. She lost her head, literally. And so what happens is that then he says, well, I need a new wife. So he says, okay. So he sets up a Miss Medes and Persians 460 BC beauty contest. And basically one woman from each of the 127 provinces will come together and he'll judge them and then he'll pick one, obviously the most beautiful one, as his wife. And this is where we meet Esther. And in chapter 2 verse 7, this is the whole book of Esther in 10 minutes, okay? It says of Esther in chapter 2 verse 7, it says, This girl who was known as Esther was lovely in form and features. She was a babe. She was a babe. She was lovely in form and features. And she gets chosen to be part of this beauty contest. I wonder if she said, why me? I mean, I now am going to go and be paraded before that bloke who had his wife done away with because she said no to him. I'm ripped out of my family. I'm ripped out of my home. I'm paraded before this bloke. What's my future going to look like now? Why me? Why me? Why would I do that? And then she has to prepare for her first date. Now... I know how long a guy prepares for a date. It's about two minutes. But for a woman, it's a little longer than that. Am I right? 15 minutes for a first date? (laughs) Other men, yeah, right. An hour? Longer than you actually enjoy the date? Esther had to prepare for a first date for 12 months. Can you imagine that? 12 months beauty treatment. All about you. 12 months beauty treatment for a first date. She must have lay there on that table, you know, getting slapped with all that stuff that, that, that happens, thinking, why me? Why am I here being slapped around with hot wax and oils and all this business and towels? I'm going to be paraded before that middle-aged bloke who drinks a lot and gets his mates around to look and to ogle at me. Why me? Why me? And then the plot really begins to thicken because her cousin Mordecai, who is a politician who is in the court, he learns that Haman... This other guy has it in for him and not only has it in for him, but he has it in for the whole Jewish people. And there's a plot that unravels that where Haman wants to see all of the Jewish people killed. And Mordecai, it says in chapter 4, it says, listen to this, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. So he's out there in sackcloth and ashes, wailing, weeping, because his people, the Jewish people, are about to be slaughtered. And what does Esther do? Well, let me say, Esther feels that pain, 
because she's a Jew as well. She doesn't want that to happen. She wants, listen to me, she wants the need to be met, but this is her response, and this is my point this morning. In chapter 4, when Esther's maids came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She was obviously affected by the need. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So, so what's happening here? So what happens is that she says, actually, there's a need. I can see that, that my cousin Mordecai is in great distress and he's, he's ripped his clothes and he's, and he's sat there. And, and I want the need to be met. So she sent him clothes, but he wouldn't accept them. Now, this doesn't say it in the Bible, but because I'm a Bible teacher, I've worked this out. She's a woman and he's a man. See, that's training for you, that is, I tell you. Therefore, the clothes she sent were not even her clothes. They were somebody else's. So in order to meet the need, she doesn't send anything that really costs her. She just sends second-hand clothes. My point is this. You can want the need met, but many of us want the need met without it inconveniencing our life. I'd love this church to be built. I'd love the community to be reached. But please don't let it inconvenience my life. I've got some second-hand clothes. Will that do? And Mordecai says, I don't want that. I don't want the second-hand clothes. This isn't about the second-hand clothes. This is about why you've come to a royal position for such a time as this. You are the only person who can go in and see the king on our behalf. Esther, the only thing that we need from you right now is your sacrifice. It's your sacrifice. We've got two weeks to go until our gift and pledge day. And many of you will know, because you've been in the home meetings that I've been doing, or you've been here on Sundays, that we set a target of what we want to reach, uh, of what we want to gather in through the church, through the membership. And that target was £750,000, which represents a lot of money. It would be the biggest gift of sacrificial gift that this church has ever given by a long long way but even though we set a target because we have to for the bank and for business purposes and for all that in one sense we really haven't set a target because we believe that God can do more than we can ask or imagine how many of you believe that we believe that and so at some of the home gatherings I've been explaining to you that if you take a big number and break it down actually it's much more using Nelson's words doable So if you gave a gift of £250 and you gave £25 a month over two years and you gift aided, okay, that would be around £1,000 just over. If 150 of us did that, that would be £160,000, which is a lot of money. But if you gave a gift of £500 and you gave £50 a month, that would be just over £2,000. That would be £318,000 if 150 people did that. And 150, I mean like households, say me and Alison, that's one. If you're single, that may be two. If you gave £1,000 and £75 a month, that would be £3,500 over the two years. It would be half a million pounds, 525000 If you gave £2,000 and £100 a month, that would be £5,500. It would be 825000 Shall I keep going? If you gave £5,000 and £150 a month, that would be £10,750. It would be £1.6 million. By breaking it down like that. Now, if this number became 200, of course, all these numbers change. And the one at the bottom becomes 2.1 million pounds. That's incredible, isn't it? By breaking it down. Now, I know that that top figure there 
a gift of £250 and £25 a month is incredibly sacrificial for many people in our church. In fact, it would be too much money. They would not be able to sacrifice and give that. We know that. We understand that. But for many of us, that doesn't represent a sacrificial gift because we wouldn't even miss it. Because £25 a month is twice to the cinema and one Chinese meal for four. And we wouldn't miss it. Some of us wouldn't miss this. Some of us might not even miss that. I'd like to meet you. But the reality is it's not the size of the gift, it's the level of sacrifice. And you see, we all could respond by sending second-hand clothes that don't inconvenience our life. Or we could say, do you know what? I am in a royal position right now. And I have some of the favour of God and I can respond and I can contribute. And then last Sunday I told you, for those of you that are here, that as part of this whole process we felt it right that the leaders gave first and led the way sacrificially. And so 19 households of leaders, 35 leaders, elders and their partners, some staff and their partners and some of the building team that were, here, were involved originally, we all came together two weeks ago on a Sunday night and we gave sacrificially. Now, that, that num- represents 8% of people in the church that were invited to the home meeting. Just 8%. In my mind, I had two figures. As I said last week, a suicide figure. That if we, if we didn't hit this figure, alright, I'd be having my head in the oven or whatever. And also, I had a faith figure. That if God, by your grace, we could reach this figure, this would be phenomenal. Because that figure would be £150,000, which would represent 20% of our target. And I thought, God, if 8% of us could reach 20%, that would be phenomenal. But do you know what the leaders gave? Those of you that weren't here, I want to tell you. The leaders sacrificed together and they gave £267,000 to the vision God has given us. Which is phenomenal, isn't it? Absolutely phenomenal. Represents 36% of our target, given by 8% of the people. You see, none of us, and you know, p- people ask me, oh, oh, wow, I can't get my head around that. How? Because out of those 35 people, five were retired, 12 were church workers. I mean, surely nobody in that group has any real challenges financially now. I mean, all the kids must have grown up. They must all be sitting on loads of... No, that's not the case at all. And then somebody asked me, has anyone had to alter their lifestyle to give that? And my answer is yes, all of us. You cannot sacrifice without altering your lifestyle by definition. By definition. If we haven't had to alter our lifestyle, we can't say here's a sacrifice. Because it's not a sacrifice unless it costs you. I can give second hand clothes, that's a gift. But that's not a sacrifice. Because it isn't inconveniencing me at all. And what I want to do this morning is we want to do something slightly different. We're going to take communion in a moment. I want you to hear from three of the leaders because you've heard a lot from me. And really, genuinely, this isn't all about money. Okay? I know we're talking about money because we're two weeks to go. But this isn't all about money. This is all about our response to our God. This is all about how much do we love God. This is all about how much do we want the need to be met. Because we don't mind praying about it sometimes. We don't mind singing about it. But when it means that it costs us and inconveniences our life, that's a different deal. So I want you to hear from some of these guys and girls this morning. You're going to hear from Helen and from Lee and from Rachel. And I want to just tell you who they are because you might not know. Helen is one of our elders. She's married to Chris, who's a member of staff here. They've got two teenage girls, one at university and one at school. 
Lee is one of our elders. He's also worship leader on this morning. He's married to Jane, who's a part-time teacher. And they've got two little girls, one at school and one not at school. Rachel is one of our staff members. She's our director of operations. She's married to Al. He works for Birmingham City Council. And they've got three kids. The middle one played the guitar solo very ably this morning. That's Sam. So I want to introduce them to you, Helen, Lee, and Rachel. And they're just going to tell you a little bit about what God's done in their life through this whole process. So would you put your hands together and welcome them. I've given them two to three minutes tops, and there is a trap door with a button, which I have. Okay, here we go then, two minutes. When I started to think about what to share this morning, um, just a verse came back to me really that I feel I've lived over the last few months. And it's a really well-known verse that we think about when we think about giving from 2 Corinthians 9. And it just says, you must each make up your mind in your... You must each make up your own mind as to how much you should give. Don't give reluctantly or in in response to pressure, for God loves the person who gives cheerfully. And for me, that's kind of been the process um, that I've been in. So the first thing was about how much do we give? And because of being around, you know that there's going to be an opportunity to give at some point in this. And I had a figure in the back of my mind. But I have to say, in this process of we've prayed and we've talked and we've considered, that figure's changed. And I believe that for us as a family, we've moved from a figure that would have been a stretch for us to a figure that I believe is a sacrifice. But you know already, started to see God's faithfulness in that and his provision in that. And who knows what we could aspire to in that. So then it's the kind of thing about how do we give. Chris and I obviously have had to be in agreement in this. Um, We've had to consider the girls in this and what it means for them because it's going to affect all of us. And they've had to understand how and why we're doing what we're doing. But also I've had questions. So there have been times when as a leader I've thought, what am I expected to give? And what I'm going to give, is it enough? How does that look, you know, within the church? And I've really had to come back to this verse and just think again, this is between me and God. This is a spiritual decision that we're making here. It's not about everybody else. It's about me and God. And there was one afternoon, I confess, where I sat at home on the, la- on the settee in the lounge and thought of all the things that we could do with that money. And I spent it quite happily. <laughs> and more besides. But again, it's about what is the priority in my life? What place has God got in my life? And so then it was kind of, that kind of felt quite a head thing really, you know, going through the process, yes, praying about it, but deciding what we were going to give and how we were going to give it. And then two weeks ago, Jane spoke on the morning that we were going to come back in the evening and give our gifts. And I don't know if you remember, but she told the story about an incident that happened in youth about a young lad that had come down to youth on the Friday night for the first time. And I'm going to go again in a minute. Partway through the evening, a lady had come to the building in tears and with a photograph of this lad. And she just said, I'm looking for this boy. I don't know where he's been for the last three days. And down in youth on that Friday night, that lady and and this lad were reunited. I'm sure there's still stuff for them to sort out. But that last lad was found by the lady that was looking for him. And as I sat in the service that morning, God just broke my heart a little bit. That's why I'm giving my money. 
to see things like that happen more and more through this new building, but to see God reach people. He's there with a photograph saying there are so many people that I love that I want to, God's going to bring them into this building. He does already, but he's going to do that more and more. So when it came to the evening when we met in the building, a group of people that I love, people that I know love God and love this church, it was just an amazing time. I was ready to come out an hour before we were due to be here and went round the house doing all those little jobs that, you know, when there's nervous energy going on. And we just had an awesome time. And for me, it was one of the most tangible, sacrificial acts of worship that I've done in my time as a Christian. My story will be different to yours. My journey is different to yours. But imagine what God can do through all of us. Hello again. That guitar feels slightly uncomfortable, but there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, just, I mean, Helen shared that this, earlier this morning as well, really, and a lot of what she said really kind of um, was, was reiterating what I was going to say this morning, but just briefly from our point of view as a, as a family with my wife, and um, we've, we're really, really passionate about this church. We're really passionate about the vision that, that God has, has given this particular community in this particular time and place. And so when it came and we started talking about this, and it was many, a, a number of months ago now, the passion was there. I think a lot of it was in our head as much as our heart, but it was probably more in our head at the time. And, and we kind of got together and we prayed and we debated and we discussed how, we'd, how we could do this. And, and one of the things that we, we found is we really did want to give, but we had kind of fairly modest savings and um, disposable income and all that kind of stuff. We thought, well, you know, how, can we, how can we give more? How can we, how can we commit more in, in respect to that? But as we prayed and discussed, a figure kind of emerged that we thought, you know, that, that's something we, we'd really want to, want, want to commit to. And so the process we went through was quite an interesting one. We, we probably went through this four, five, six times really. Where we sat down, and I'm sad and geeky with spreadsheets and things like this. Um, but we just started looking through how we spent our money and looking at what, what, you know, what we had to have, like electricity and a roof over, the, over our kids' heads and all the rest of it. But more importantly, we said, well, what do we actually do? What do we spend our money on? That, you know, tomorrow, you know, the, the world disappeared and all the rest of it, it would mean nothing. And that was an incredible, very, very liberating experience because what happened is we started to carve away uh, what we thought we could commit, what we thought was disposable income in, in, in inverted commas. And we went through this, as I say, a number of times. And a real, it was a real paradox to us because what happened, and it had to be a God thing, it was a God thing, the more we did this exercise and the more we went, we, could, we don't need that, we don't need that, we don't need that, we don't need that, the more we actually found it easier to do. And we started to get a sense of joy in, in that as well. And it's, a, and it's very difficult to explain, and it is a real paradox. But it kind of became easier. It was still a sacrifice. And at the, at the end of the day, we are obviously, you know, we've changed the way that we live our life. We've changed the way that we do life in, in, in so many ways. But there was a real release there. An absolute release that, that, that kind, of, kind of came through when we did that. And we started to get really, really exciting. And, and we, even on the day when we, we came here, came here we, and we sat down, and, and I, I just to emphasise Helen's point, the presence of God. When you get a, a group of people together that are totally committed to God's vision and what God wants to do, there's just something, I use the word magic, but special, special there. And it just it calls it out of you and it, it draws it out of you. And, and, and just... 
and I will share this, obviously, it's, it's been a year or so since I've kind of moved into the, the, the position of, of leadership. But I mean, now, to see what God is doing through this church, what God is doing through this church and the way that he's impacting this community, it just blows my socks off and it's overwhelming. And I tell you what, I desperately, desperately want to be part of this. Desperately, desperately want to be part of what, what God's doing in this place. It is achievable. It's doable, to use Nelson's word earlier on. But you have to take a step back and say, you know what, God? If you were here now with my resources, how would you use them? If you were here with my salary, my income, and all the rest of it, what would you actually do with that? And I'm not doing the old Oscar speech here at all. But I am trying to draw that out of you, really. We are called to be Christ-like. We are called to be children of God. We are called to be sacrificial. How would God use our finances? And that's the kind of, and we're not there yet. And one thing I will share, which I shared earlier on today as well, myself and Jane are pretty prudent when it comes to money. We're not, you know, excessive in any way. And we always kind of sat there a little glibly thinking, oh, we're quite good stewards of our money. God really taught us a lesson here that we were okay. We were okay, we're okay stewards. But by raising our game and becoming good stewards, we could release so much more to what God's vision was all about. So I would implore you this morning, you know, take that step back. Take a risk. And as I shared earlier on, think radical and think wild because that's what we're called to be. And that's my journey. Um, I've been part of this church for 28 of its 30 years. And it was just a real privilege to be part of this group of leaders. And I was at the end looking around thinking, I can't think of a better group of people I'd rather be a bit hard up with for the next couple of years. <laughs> so it was, it was just really good, but... Okay. I, I would hate for anybody to sort of think, yeah, but you're leaders and there's something a little bit different or maybe there's a chemical thing in the brain that just makes the thing just a whole lot easier because that really, really isn't true. And we've all had a real struggles and challenges with it. And Leon mentioned that my husband works for Birmingham City Council and he'd had, up to two or three years ago, he'd had quite a lot of promotions. He was doing really, really well. And we got a really, really good income. And knowing that this was all coming, this building thing, I'd kind of in my head worked out what we could do, what we could give. I'd kind of got it nailed. And then two and a half years ago, there was a transformation thing happened in his department. And that was coupled with a national... Um, pay review of all public sector that he went through and the effect of all that was he went from his position to being in a pool of employees looking for being relocated within the council and it was a really hard time because at that time straight away we lost nearly a quarter of our income and we were also going to lose another lot in April of next year. That was really tough because straight away then two years ago we had to look at cutting back and what could we do. We had our house valued with a view to selling it and getting a cheaper one. Um, and I actually looked for a full-time job as well at the time. But that door shut and, you know, we didn't feel it was right for us to move house at the time just to wait to see what happened. And God kind of brought us through that and we did get through and we managed to readjust and everything. And um, we were okay. But then we start talking about the third place and I'm thinking oh, what are we going to do? You know, we've already done all that. We've already done the cutting back. We've done without the holiday. We've, you know, what, what are we actually going to do? And um, all the time that we've had an income, we've always tithed our income and we've never ever felt that that was because we believed that God would give us back because we did that. We don't believe that. But I do believe in God's timing and God's provision. And God has never let us down ever financially. We've never, not always been in a good position, but he's never let us down. 
And over this last year, Al's been given another job in the council that suits him better. He likes it more. It didn't affect the finance. That was still at that level. But um, somewhere in the depths, we knew that was being reviewed as well. And we had a letter about five weeks before the gift day to say that uh, his job was actually being regraded re re up and it was going to be backdated for 12 months. So we got given like this lump sum and then this increase in salary, which came through 20 days before, because I thought, oh, local authority, they're going to be really slow, when are we going to get it? It actually came through 20 days before the gift and pledge day. And it was just like God saying, well, there you go, that is the, the large part of your provision for the third place. But then we've still had to go and ask ourselves, you know, if we just give that, that's not a sacrifice, because that's not going to change our lives as it is now. So we've had to work through that as well, and what else can we do? But I just want to encourage you, you know, God won't let you down in this. He really, really won't. Whatever we do, if you put him first, he won't. And his timing and everything is perfect. And yes, if the boiler packs up, what we're going to do? Well, that'll be God's problem, not mine. You know? And we can all be poor together. That's good, isn't it? So it's over to you now. These next two weeks, it's over to you to think and to pray. And I have to say, many of us as leaders changed the numbers that we were going to pledge on the day. Okay, this, and we've been thinking and praying about it for weeks and months. And it's now over to you. And you know, the amazing thing about what happened with Esther is that after she heard this news from Mordecai, that actually it wasn't the second-hand clothes that he was after. It was actually much more than that. And then he said to her, listen... You know, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will come from somewhere else. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. This is why me, Esther. This is why you. You're in the court right now because God wants to use you. And she said this. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susan and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. See, that's called sacrifice, isn't it? First she sends second-hand clothes, but then she says, in second-hand clothes you want, it's me. It's me. If I perish, I perish. Because actually I am here for such a time as this. And I believe that every one of us are in a royal position. I, that was great what Rachel said. There's nothing different chemically in our brains as leaders or anything like that. But there's just something that says, do you know what? If I'm connected to God, I am in royal position for such a time as this. And what we're going to do as we finish this morning is that we're going to do something which is so ancient, it can appear irrelevant at times. For 2,000 years, Christians have done this. Not necessarily with white cloths or all this kind of stuff. But they've gathered around these two simple emblems. Two simple symbols. The bread and the wine. And we do this because we remember. That word is a biblical covenant word. That Jesus said, you do this in remembrance of me. Remember this. If you imagine a bowling ball, okay, on garden bowls. It's got a bias called a bias, yeah? So it turns a certain way. Human beings do not have a bias towards sacrifice. We have a bias the other way. Our bias is towards selfishness, to about us, to about me and my life, and me and my family. That's our bias. Communion reminds us that our Savior has a bias towards something totally different. He has a bias towards sacrifice on behalf 
of others. He has a bias towards expressing how much he loves us by giving. You see, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. It's impossible. And so we're going to take communion together to remind ourselves. And you see, I think Esther realized, you know what? My life is not all about me. And the why me question is not all about why has all this bad stuff happened. But actually, God, why have you blessed me? Because you have. Why have you given me favor? Because you have. Well, it's to meet a need. It's to meet a need. It's doable if we all sacrifice. And so we're going to remind ourselves of that this morning. And uh, there's a song that we're going to use on the Christmas carol concert. And there's the chorus of the song that I want to read to you because it's just blown me away. It says this, How many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least for me? And how many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers give up their sons for me? And of course, the answer is only one, isn't it? Only one. God loves us so much that he sacrificed. He didn't send us secondhand clothes. He gave us his one and only son.